swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, I'm joined by founder, Silicon Valley tech executive and podcaster, Yaniv Bernstein, to ask, can you bootstrap a unicorn? But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday, the 2nd of November. Tough news for New Zealand grocery startup Soupy, as the supermarket challenger has gone into voluntary administration, owing $3 million. According to the New Zealand Herald, the company, which aimed to be a cost-effective grocery delivery service, laid off the majority of its 120-person workforce and will be unable to pay them for their last two weeks of work or any holiday or sick pay. The company, which had asked investors for another $3 million following an alleged supplier squeeze, experienced a significant drop in its valuation from the $20 million figure it boasted back in mid-2022 when it last raised capital. New CSIRO Chief Executive Doug Hilton may be the one to breathe new life into the organization, as InnovationOz.com reports that Hilton has expressed a desire to move beyond the scope of research commercialization. In a recent interview, Hilton paid homage to his predecessor Larry Marshall and says that his commercialized entrepreneurship programs will continue to be a focus, but Hilton has also stated that he hopes to honor the trust and public dollars of the Australian people by investing in entrepreneurship and research that will benefit the wider community. CSIRO is a significant player in connecting ideas with capital and occasionally a direct investor through its main sequence ventures. The startup world's gender imbalance problem has once again risen to the surface as the Startup Muster Industry Survey has amended their list of most recommended mentors after the original list drew criticism for being entirely male, with a note saying, we look forward to a much better gender ratio next year. According to Smart Company, the not-so-smart Startup Muster added a list of female mentors next to the original list in response to the criticism, saying they'd, quote, rather screw up and fix quickly than just screw up. Before the amendment, Startup Muster Managing Director Murray Herbst called the original list a travesty, stating that the ecosystem needs to take a, quote, good hard look at itself, end quote, a statement that both the pot and the kettle found hilarious. And finally, if you don't have an electric car yet, you're going to feel really behind now that we know that we're making electric airplanes. Electric aircraft manufacturing on a budget sounds like a pipe dream, but there's a Melbourne-based startup making it a reality. AU Manufacturing recently reported that Kite Magnetics has opened their green aviation test facility on a budget of less than US $1 million and demonstrated the operation of their 120-kilowatt electric engine in front of spectators for the first time ever. The startup says that they are committed to becoming a major player in the electric aircraft industry, looking to have their first vehicle ready for flight testing in 2024, and I will need a lot of testing on that before I get on board. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment.
unicorn status, or a 1 billion US valuation, is sometimes made out to be every founder's dream. And the success stories we tend to focus on are startups who've raised capital to reach that milestone. Is unicorn status out of reach for a bootstrap startup? And do you really need to have that goal in mind to be successful? To help me unpack the difference in growth strategies between funded and bootstrap startups, I'm joined by Yaniv Bernstein. Yaniv's CV includes stints at Google and Airtasker, and he's now the founder and CEO of Circular, as well as a co-host of the Startup Podcast. Yaniv, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thanks, I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to be here too. I have been listening to the Startup Podcast maybe almost since it started, and it's one of those funny things where I feel like I know you <laughs> in, yeah. a, in, a, in a way that's not, and I don't mean that in a creepy way at all. You know, you know what I mean? I've been on the other end of that too. <laughs> so they're called parasocial relationships. And yeah, I think yes. podcasts are really, really powerful for that because you're literally in people's ears having a conversation and over time they get to know you. So that's oh, uh, really cool. Yeah, that's great. So let's get stuck into this. What is your take on the idea that a lot of founders, I think, have that a startup has to be on a pathway to becoming a unicorn. Is that healthy? Is it realistic, particularly when we're talking about bootstrapping founders? No, it's not healthy or realistic. <laughs> Next question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, when you listen to the startup podcast, you, you find yourself yelling at us because... Mostly um, Chris. You know, we, mostly Chris, perhaps. But, um, <laughs> you know, we, we bill ourselves as a podcast for people who want to build a Silicon Valley style startup at scale, right? And so we're about VC-backed startups. And one of the things that we say quite often in our podcast actually is know the game that you're playing, right? So if it's, it's not so much that you should be aiming to build a unicorn, but that if you want to build a venture-backed startup, if you want to take outside capital, then that actually implies a certain type of outcome. They probably won't invest in you unless you have a chance of being worth, well, if not a unicorn, at least hundreds of millions of dollars in valuation. That's simply how the economics of venture capital work. But nobody says you have to take venture capital, right? And you know, the, the wonderful thing about business and, and capitalism, I guess, is that you get to decide what it is that you're trying to build. And if you're bootstrapping, on the one hand, you don't get the outside support that you get from venture capital investors. But on the other hand, you get a lot more freedom, right, to decide the type of business you want to build and in particular to decide the type of outcome that you want. I really love what you said there because that's one of the first questions that I ask people when I start working with them is, well, two things. One is what is your your goal? What do you want out of this? Because some people do have that dream. Some people have a big entrepreneurial dream. A lot of people that I work with, because it's mainly B2B, uh, SaaS in that space, that they've come from an industry that they want to improve and they have a vision for adding value and also generating income at the same time. And I think what people, we don't spend enough time talking to people about is that the way that you structure and plan your business from the get-go needs to be informed by that goal because it's hard to kind of change later on and go, actually, no, I think we should get funding when you've already gone down another path. There are multiple types of funding as well, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that the whole concept of a unicorn can be quite problematic, right? I think the, the point is, and I don't know if you want to go in this direction, Scotty, but like 
to talk about why it is that venture capitalists need you to have the potential to become a unicorn. It's really to do with their fundamental economics. And that means they're only going to be interested in you if you have that potential. And it also means that it closes off a whole lot of avenues to you once you decide to partner with a venture capitalist. And so you, you need to be comfortable with that before you do it. Yeah. So if we think about, I guess, those different growth strategies, what are the key differences between the growth strategy of a startup that is aiming for that VC funding as opposed to bootstrapping? Well, I mean, I think it's a lot to do with capital cycles, right? I think what venture capital is good at is enabling types of businesses that simply wouldn't be possible otherwise, right? Which is businesses that have very high capital expenditures that require a lot of investment before they return on that investment, but that also have very low marginal costs, which means that once you've actually achieved that product market fit or whatever you want to call it, you can really just start printing money, right? So it's actually about time horizon saying, I'm taking money now, I'm going to spend a lot of money, and in five years and 10 years, I'm going to start making a shit ton of money. And that is how <laughs> everyone is going to get paid for that. It's worth understanding why does venture capital concentrate in software tech startups and in biotech? It is because they both have this profile of you often need to spend a lot of money to do that fundamental work before you have a product that is capable of being monetizable in a massive way. But it also has massively low marginal costs or massively high margins, right? If you think about, mm. Uh, mm. you know, adding an incremental customer to a SaaS product or like manufacturing a drug once all the fundamental research and once all of the um, cl clinical trials are done, well, then you can just make huge amounts of money, but you have to spend a lot of money to get there. Now, bootstrapping, unless you happen to have incredibly deep pockets, in which case you're effectively venture funding yourself, mm -hmm. you can't do that. You need to have much faster returns on your working capital. You need to be able to spend a dollar and get $2 back in a few months uh, and then take those $2 and make $4 back in a few months and grow organically that way. And, you know, we call it bootstrapping, but really this is the way most businesses have operated since the dawn of time. So it's really mm -hmm. bootstrapping is not the anomaly. It is the venture back model that is the anomaly. And it's a really exciting anomaly and it's one that can work incredibly well, but you actually have to understand the economics behind it for it to make sense. Mm, mm. I think one thing that, particularly in Australia, where we have this smaller and less mature startup community, the headlines, the startup news is ninety percent of it is about funding. Yeah, it is, and yeah. and so how how do we change that narrative in terms of getting stories out there about? incremental successes because when you talk to, to to some of the people that we work with they they get told by people oh that's just a lifestyle business that's just a whatever and but they are actually passionate about what they're building like how do we change that narrative from a one-size-fits-all success trajectory yeah i mean lifestyle business is just it's a bit of an unfortunate term right because it, it makes it seem like you're not doing something serious or significant. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just to destigmatize it. You know, when, when a VC says this is a lifestyle business, what they mean is this is a business that is not fundable by VC. And that's not a value judgment or it, it no. shouldn't be a value judgment. It is simply a commercial evaluation that 
the the type of business that you're building is not fundable in this way. And like I said, there are other types of funding. There is debt, revenue-based finance and stuff like that that can work really well for bootstrappers. I come back to know the game you're playing. There is no stigma. And by the way, if you're building a business that is turning over millions of dollars and, you know, perhaps can be valued at $50 million, that's not a small business. That is a large business that can can certainly give you, you know, a lot of personal wealth, a lot of personal fulfillment, and can also provide a lot of value to customers, to employees and so on. So it's not just a, yeah, it's not, it's not like a side hustle, you know, when you hear lifestyle yeah. business, it sounds like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just selling, you know, makeup off the back of a truck or something. It's yeah, like, it's no, like my herb you can build a really substantial, <laughs> really substantial business by bootstrapping. Yeah. I shared with you before we started recording that, you know, my original background is education and I moved into some ed tech startups out of schools. Mm. And the first business that I worked for, I did not, was owned by a, a family and wonderful people to work for there. Sometimes I felt like we're just not ambitious enough. We, there's all these opportunities that I could see where we could have pivoted. And I didn't, it wasn't until like closer to the end of my time there where I really realized and that they kind of said explicitly, you know, we, we've never taken any funding. We've never had any debt. This has all been based on revenue. And our goals have been to look after our family and rock up to the office every day and be able to look everyone in the eye and know that we're going to be able to continue to employ them. Mm. And we take that responsibility really seriously. And, and I realized like, oh, that is actually, it's not a lack of ambition. It is a, they knew themselves. Mm-hmm. They knew what success looked like to them and they were really serious about it. Mm. And I think that that's a lot of, you know, going back to what do you want out of this? A lot of it comes back to that. Like, you know, what is this going to look like for you as success? So I really, I really appreciate that. Now I've challenged you on LinkedIn about the premise of your, your show. But I, I do, I absolutely get it in terms of this is, you've got that Silicon Valley experience. You want to help people understand what's actually involved in that, get real about it. What are some of the things that come out of that Silicon Valley startup playbook that bootstrapping founders could actually adapt or adopt? Because sometimes I think when we listen to that, and I know in my own founder journey, when I first, even though I'd worked in startups, I'd been in startups that had been acquired. When I first started on my own, I was listening to things and felt like, I feel like I've missed the first few chapters of the book here because we're just, we don't talk about where the money comes from. We just assume, assume that we've got it and you know this is what you do with it. Mm. So if, if people are going down that bootstrapping road, what are things that come out of that Silicon Valley experience that they can actually apply? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, of course, it depends what type of business you're trying to build. But personally, I spent 10 years working at Google, which was a really great experience. And one of the things I saw there was this focus on using technology effectively to build something that scales, right? And again, I I think perhaps the difference between like a lifestyle business in the sense that perhaps it should be met, like you said, selling something out of your herb garden and a bootstrapped startup that is ambitious is you still need to build something that can scale, right? Like if if you want to reach $5 million, $10 million in ARR, you you still need to build something scalable, a scalable software product. And that requires an understanding of what technology can and can't do for you. 
I think it requires an understanding of how you build products. I think that's actually perhaps the the key takeaway. And and weirdly, Scotty, I know, I know like you know your your business is called the Product Bus. In <laughs> some ways, understanding how product is built and you know some of the concepts around agile and lean and so on are more important for bootstrappers because you get fewer shots on goal, right? Mm-hmm. You have less you have less resourcing. You probably have less runway. And so if you don't understand how to build a product that people will actually use and then ultimately actually, and in the case of a bootstrap, more importantly, actually pay for. So the bar is higher than for a, for a VC-backed startup. You are likely to build something that nobody wants yep. and put a lot of sweat and blood into it. So to understand those fundamentals of like, what does it take to build a software product? Uh, that is just super important. And, you know, I'd say, and I hope you agree from listening to our podcast, most of our episodes are not around raising capital. They are around how do you build a great product and a great culture and a great team. And I think that stuff is just as applicable to a bootstrap startup as to a venture-backed startup. Absolutely. And that's where I I feel sometimes where we let our bootstrapping founders down is by the scale of the examples that we give because the principles are the same Mm -hmm. in terms of how you validate an idea, how you work out where the market positioning is, et cetera. But you can, you can do that on a very small scale on a very low budget and where the advice that a lot of people get from what they listen to. And then also because when they go to those incubators and accelerators, and I, I, you know, I love what you were talking about in terms of understanding what VCs are looking for is that they say, yeah, go build it, come back, and you've got some traction. And what I think what we miss in that is some people then are going to go and spend money on things that they shouldn't build, mm. that they you can build to validate when you've got budget. I can spend 40 grand on an MVP to throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. But what then happens is people take that advice, they spend their only 40 grand on building something without doing any of that. And then that's where they get stuck. So, and that's where sometimes my like, there's, there's other examples it comes in is that it's about scale. Mm. And I, I agree. Cause I, I think values wise, I feel like always very aligned to what you are saying. And it's that, that, that heart for founders, that culture, all of that. It's like the scale of the examples. Am I making sense when I say that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it does. And, and if, if I may be permitted to rant a little bit, I, I think even more toxic than the term lifestyle business is the way the term MVP gets used or abused, <laughs> right? So we, we recently replayed an, an episode on our podcast with Marty Kagan, who's a, a great product thinker. And he's, he's like, I prefer to use the term prototype, right? Because I think MVP has, has actually, the term has been abused to mean, oh, like just the first cheap, crappy version of my product. That is not the intention of the term MVP and the term prototype captures it much better, right? An MVP is designed to learn something about your product and it should be as cheap as possible. And it doesn't even have to be a working product. It can be just a landing page, you know, a form, that sort of thing. And so when you say you're spending 40 grand on an MVP, well, that's, that's actually a pretty chunky MVP. And the, the point about an MVP is, and again, when it comes back to bootstrapping, you need to be making money a lot faster with a bootstrap business than with a venture-backed business. To get to the point of making money, you actually need to run dozens of MVPs, right? You need to yes. run a lot of experiments and learn a lot, which means that your experiments have to be 
much leaner and much cheaper. You should not be spending 40 grand. Like every time I, I see someone on, on like a group saying, oh, I, I need someone to build an app for me, my, my heart sinks a little bit because I'm like, if that is the mindset you're going into your business with, you're probably on a hiding to nothing. You're probably going to blow a bunch of cash and you're going to end up with an app and you'll realize that app is not solving anyone's problem and you don't know where to go next from there. And yeah, yeah you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, MVP, I would recommend erasing that term from your vocabulary if you're listening. We've conflated too many different things into that. Mm-hmm. And I think that I always go back to the lean startup concept of like everything at this stage is learning. And so it's still a hypothesis. We're testing a hypothesis. We don't need to build a fully functioning web app to test that hypothesis. We can do some do things a bit more manually behind the scenes for the client to actually see, will people actually pay for this? Mm. And I don't like the, the version of this where people say, get the landing page going and get them to actually put in their credit card details and then say this is coming because I feel like I would, if I've got my credit card out, I'm ready now. And if it's not ready now, then I'm like, uh, you know, that you've kind of burned me. But I think, you know, getting that that call to action of like sign up for uh, early access is something that can really give you validation. And I've worked with clients who've done that and not built a thing because it didn't, mm, mm. It, like they realized, oh, people don't want this. They spend 80 bucks on a, on a landing page to work that out. It's a, as opposed to spending 30 grand on a MVP. And when you go to a developer to say, I've got this app, it's not their job to validate your business idea. It's their job to go, okay, yeah, I can do that for you. <laughs> They're not guaranteeing you that anyone is actually going to buy it. So what, what do you think about the credit card thing? About like actually getting people to put in the details yeah. and then saying, oh, hi, we're not ready. Well, I mean, I guess the, the, there's two aspects to that. Like one is, I guess, the ethical one, which is like, okay, kind of tricking people and basically yeah. stealing their credit card details. Yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah I agree. I'm, I'm not that comfortable with that. And then, But then your other point is about burning people. I actually, I, I don't think that like in terms of the future success of your business, I wouldn't worry about that too much because the whole point is you're trying to validate demand. Yeah. If you've burnt a few people, but then... You, you can see that there's a lot of demand for this thing. It's like there'll be more fish in that, in that sea, right? But I'd say, I'd say it's more of an ethical question. And, you know, I'd say you want to treat prospective customers with respect and you don't want to steal their credit card details for no reason. No. So, yeah, you know, sometimes you have to sail a bit close to the wind and pretend a product exists, but it doesn't really yet. But then you say, oh, it's coming soon and that sort of thing. And that's, you know, demand validation. But, yeah. um, you know, that, that can sometimes just be a really important thing to do. But it can also just be like, oh, you run ads and see if people click on them. Like, what's what's your CPC? Because that tells, tests two things. It tests demand and it tests your ability to capture that demand. And, you know, there's that saying that, you know, first-time founders are obsessed with product and second-time founders are obsessed with distribution, right? Because <laughs> the, the, the worst thing here, Scotty, is that you can actually end up building a product that really does solve the problem for people, but you can't figure out how to get anyone to, like, find out about it. Yes. And you've got that so-called field of dreams problem, right? If you build it, they will come. So yeah. testing your distribution alongside your product makes a lot of sense. I think that kind of pitfall that you're talking about can come more from founder developers where they, I've had this a number of times where people, they know how brilliant their code is and don't understand that that doesn't sell. Like you may actually have solved mm-hmm. the problem better than other people uh, who are currently solving the problem. But if it's a, you just got to appreciate, you know, how smart I am, 
to yeah, then yeah. that's really not going to be a great selling point. Mm. And I, I think trying to help B2B SaaS founders understand that their idea probably is not going to be the thing that investors are most excited about is challenging because it's often you're, you're solving problems in a space where there's not a lot of green fields left for un- unless it's like climate tech. You know? But when people come in to a crowded space and they think they can do it better, that is something where they've got to understand that this is going to be revenue-based growth. There's not going to be someone that's going to catch the vision. Mm. And I'm so fatigued by oh it's the uber for yeah it's the uber for dog groomers or you know whatever and you're like no but yeah but i mean look i might slightly disagree with you there because in australia at least i actually find that that most venture capitalists are much more comfortable with b2b SaaS than they are with anything else and i think that is because it does have this more predictable economics and higher willingness to pay and so on <laughs> yes sorry i i need to revise what i said they definitely in terms of where the investment comes the investment comes in B2B SaaS when you can show that you are generating revenue to the point where investment can exponentially increase it. Getting funding for B2B SaaS on the idea only mm. or people where they've already spent quite a bit of money trying to sell and then think, right, we need an investor, is mm. it's a hard sell. Well, look, I'll be honest, very few founders can get funding based on an idea only, no matter in what area. And so, you know, it's interesting when we talk about bootstrapping, maybe it's worth clarifying this a little bit, because to me, every founder probably has to bootstrap at the beginning before they secure some funding. Like if you have an incredible pedigree and very well networked and so on, you might be able to raise pre-seed funding purely based on not even your idea. It's more of like, oh, okay, you know, what, whatever it is that you're doing is probably a good thing to invest in. Yes, you were getting that right. investment based on your personal capital, right? But if that's not you, you're probably going to have to bootstrap for a while. But I do think, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts, Scotty. There's a big difference between bootstrapping to the point where you are investable and saying, I am not aiming to be investable. I am creating a business that is going to grow based on its own revenues. And I'm not just, you know, waiting to get it to a point where I can go to VC. Yes, uh, absolutely. And that's where we really focus on trying to educate people about those options because your positioning from day one is different in terms of, you know, what you spend on and what you're looking to accomplish. And a lot of these ideas they have capacity to generate revenue and it's finding what that is and then using that learning to work out. You know, I just had this conversation with someone this morning that I I think you've got an idea that could generate revenue and not need investment to get it to that kind of next level. And so you've got to really weigh the risks of bringing people in because not only do you lose part of your company, you lose complete control over your runway, over your time to learn. And that that's, I think, one of the mm-hmm. beauties of bootstrapping is that, yes, it takes longer. Yes, you know, you can have more ups and downs. But if you do it quietly, you can do that learning without blotting your copybook because when you're ready to launch, you really perfect that that message. And an investor would go, well, what have you been going for six years and you haven't made any money and now you've got a pivot idea and you want me to give you money, but no, not happening. But you can go to market like that if you find the right value proposition. And that's that space. You know, I, I've been in 
privately held companies. I've been in privately held companies that got investment, got acquired. And I know the immediate change in focus, culture, everything mm-hmm. that happens the moment that money comes in. And it's something that you, it's like humans, we just don't learn from other people's experiences. You cannot explain to people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It might seem a bit wonkish and tell me if you don't want to sort of go in this direction of, of like explaining the difference in economics and that the sort of the, the capital economics between, you know, we can call it equity funding, debt funding, and then self funding. Right, because we talk about revenue, and I think one of the times that I think this is when you wrote to me on, on LinkedIn was when we were telling founders in the startup podcast, venture back founders, you shouldn't be focusing first on revenue. You should be focusing on other risks that are going to stop you from becoming a unicorn. And the reason we say that is because, going back to what I was saying earlier, is that the whole point, like equity financing is expensive, right? You give up a lot of control and you give up quite a lot of ownership in return for that capital. The reason you want to raise equity financing is because it's the only way you can get financed. Now, it is the only way you can get financed in only one set of circumstances. It's when you're probably not going to have, not going to be profitable for a long time because your CapEx and your OpEx are going to be higher than your revenue for a long time. But then eventually there is a clear line of sight to something that just prints money. Then you take venture capital, right? Now, if you actually have a way of making reliable, consistent revenue, then you probably shouldn't be taking venture capital unless it's to like massively accelerate your growth. And then I just say that's another version of, okay, that, that investment in that growth acceleration is not going to bring a return for a long period. If you've got a more reliable period to return, you should be looking at self-funding or debt funding. Good old-fashioned borrowing money. It's like, hey, you know, if I borrow this money now, I'm going to be able to double my revenue in the next 12 months. I've got all the numbers to prove it. Mm. You're better mm. off borrowing, right? 100%. Well, and there are revenue-based funding mm-hmm. organizations like Tractor Ventures, et cetera, that yep. look at that you know, they, and they want to see that that traction. And I think that often what people do, because it, it's hard, selling is hard. I feel like people are looking for like the magic bean that will kind of grow things to the next level. and they sometimes when I work with people, when you look in what they've done, they are basically going from advisor to consultant to advisor to consultant, trying to find someone that will give them the magic bean rather than everyone saying, yeah, we're just going to have to slog this out. I worked a while ago with a physical product that had a very specific market and they were, it was not something that you could really market online. It was very sellable, but you actually would have to front up to specific types of businesses Mm. and to try and get that first sale. And the pitch was this could sell like hotcakes. We just need money to pay someone to sell it. Yeah. Why aren't you selling it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, you know, we we're a strategy and we're this and we've done the, et cetera. And like, no one is going to give you money unless you can demonstrate that you've already sold it. Like get on, get on the phone. And I hate getting on the phone, but it's sometimes just, you got to do that. No, I, that's the, I really appreciate that disambiguation of those different types of funding. So that's really important for people to understand. So people that don't have access to that kind of funding, they are bootstrapping. What are, I guess, in terms of success measures that where, because this is where we talked earlier about startup, what gets in the news is big investments, big capital mm. raises, et cetera. And so when we're looking at the news section of this podcast and we want to not talk about that, 
we talk a lot about kind of efficacy of different programs, the diversity side of things. But what are other metrics that a bootstrap founder can be using to measure success besides capital raises? Well, I mean, I don't think anyone should be using capital raises to measure success. Um, That's what gets in the news, Yaniv. News is news. Like, you know, know, a lot of bad stuff gets in the news too, right? Like, (laughs) it doesn't mean you've made it. (laughs) So does war. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. If your aim is to get in the news, then you probably shouldn't bootstrap. You should probably get on, you know, a reality TV show or something. I, I think... I think being in the news is a bad way to measure the success of any business. And it's a point that we make in, in the show as well. And it's, it's actually more of a risk for venture-backed startups. They're like, oh, we've raised lots of money. We've made it. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Raising money is not the measure of success. It is a tool that you use to drive your ultimate success. And, you know, that's the thing that people need to remember in the venture world is like you are still building a business, right? Like because you're, creating, you're having like this long runway, it, it means that like some of the normal rules of, of business are perhaps delayed, but they're not suspended, right? Ultimately, you need to become massively profitable business, generating lots of free cash flow. And so like, you know, I'd say that's like the boring answer is if you're bootstrapped, you want to be looking at your growth and your profitability. And, you know, in, in that sense, you can also be looking at your, your unit economics, you know, what are your margins and so on? What's your defensibility? But like the ultimate me- measure for a business is very simple, right? Which is free cash flow or profit, whatever you want to. Yes. And I, and I think that's the, the thing that I'm always trying to unlock in people is what could you be doing right now? Like, yes, your vision is huge, but what is a, a minimum, minimum version of that that could actually start generating revenue now and, and by giving, showing people value now so that you could actually build your vision rather than holding out right. for, you know, right. I'm only going to build, you know, I want to build the whole thing at once. Yeah. So the interesting thing, and again, we're going back and forth between venture-backed and and bootstrap because I think the comparison is really interesting, but also some of the similarities are worthwhile, which is to say that basically it's just a difference of time scale, right? Eventually what you want to have is a profitable growing business. Um, There is a point before you start becoming profitable where you want to look at leading indicators at valuable metrics such as unit economics or traction and so on. Now, the difference is a venture-backed startup, they might be able to focus on those leading metrics for five, six, seven years before they become profitable. If you're bootstrapped, you're probably only talking months or maybe you know one or two years at most, but you still have leading indicators. So the question is, okay, what are measures of success before you become profitable? They're actually probably similar to the measures of success that a venture-backed startup would look at, which is, you know, user engagement, retention, stuff like that. The only difference is you can't afford to focus in on those metrics for anywhere near as long. That's a really good way of putting it. Some people will look at the goal of unicorn status and say that it's not really about adding any genuine value. It's just about wealth creation. So what is your perspective on balancing growth and creating actual value? Okay, so that's that's interesting. And I think one of the things that's implied in your question is that there's, there's been quite a lot of a distortion in the venture market over the last few years, uh, been culminating in 2021, right, where unicorn status and value creation got somewhat detached from each other. And you could say, yeah, and you know, that, that was just a bit of a, you know, Ponzi scheme in a sense where it's like, okay, as long as, you know, you've got a, a greater fool who will buy shares in this company 
for a higher valuation than I paid for them, then they make money. And a lot of those unicorns have, have since had their horn removed. Now, it's not sustainable. I think the point is... That should when you're be in the about news. Un- <laughs> it is in the news. It is in the news, maybe. <laughs> uh, people, like, I, I don't think business news likes better than building up a company. It's tearing oh, it down. So, um, yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting in a WeWork, and WeWork just issued a solvency issue last month, right? So that, you know, they were kind of peak unicorn craziness, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their valuation's gone down by more than 99% since the peak. And, boy, um, boy. you know, they're not a unicorn anymore. Like, they're not... They, they at one point value themselves at over $50 billion and they're not even worth half a billion now. When you have that distortion, then it's easy to get cynical about unicorns. But in a normal market, a unicorn is simply saying, okay, you know, this business is impactful enough and profitable enough that it, it's worth a billion dollars. And so, you know, I think there's always this thing of like, it's important to keep your eye on the ball. But some people are inspired to create a business that is massively impactful. And in a sense, in a capitalist system, you know, the one way of measuring that impact is through profitability. And some people just want to get really rich. I I would posit this is not a very safe way to get really rich. Most people just don't. (laughs) And in fact, if you want to get, if you want to get fairly rich, but not be a billionaire, I would agree with you that bootstrapping is a much more reliable way to do it. If you want to become a billionaire, except that most people who want to become billionaires do not ever become billionaires. Or happy. Or happy. Well, (laughs) happiness is beside the point. In fact, we've got a really great series of episodes in our podcast around founder mental health, which is a whole other thing. Which I so appreciate, by the way. People get a fire in their belly to to do something big, to change the face of an industry, to solve a problem that they see all around them. And they use a venture-backed startup as a vehicle for that. And I think it's great to have that ambition if that's that's what you want to do. And again, I come back again and again to know the game you're playing. And you know, one of the things I asked a founder I was working with is, do you prefer, and again, I, I said to him, I'm, I'm using the valuations just as a proxy, but do you prefer to have a 5% chance of building a billion dollar company or a 40% chance of building a hundred million dollar company because that will affect the decisions you make. And he said, 5% chance of building a billion dollar company. And I'm like, okay, if you really mean that, great. This is what you should do. Mm. But be honest 100%. with yourself, right? Most yep. attempted unicorns fail. Yes. One question that I like to ask is what is the minimum stake that you feel comfortable holding in this? Because often that that understanding of how easily you can dilute yourself very quickly by taking investment with equity, et cetera, comes into it. And I think that that's just important to understand because there are, I've got a couple of things I'm working on at the moment where really they are going to be developed to be acquired. They are something that is a killer mm-hmm. feature that mm. there will be people that mm. will want. Mm. And if we know that from the start and we build accordingly, great. Mm. But you've got to have those you know, I- ideas in mind beforehand and ask yourself those questions. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This has been like, I've wanted to have this, this, this convo and you've actually really reassured me in a lot of ways as well, just in terms of, of thinking, because what I, having had a lot of experience working with people who are on that side of, it hasn't worked for them. They've actually put their personal financial well-being mm. on the line mm. to something that it has a very slim chance of succeeding. 
ultimately they're adults, they are responsible for those decisions. Mm. But when you look back at it, often there's a lot of careless, bad advice or bad thinking that has gone into that. And so that's where I come from in terms of wanting caveats and things. But yeah, no, actually, I agree with you very deeply. And one of the things that it breaks my heart is, you know, we had an episode recently, don't let investors kill your dreams. But we're actually in that in that episode, we're actually very clear to say that having a dream is not enough, right? That that one of the things is you, you need to have this sort of big vision, but then you have to have a very pragmatic understanding of how to build your business and your product. And yeah, I think it's hard because sometimes startups and this sort of world, it attracts dreamers, it attracts people with a big idea and with a passion for that. And that's beautiful to see. But if they don't get their shit buttoned up, then yeah, they're going to waste a lot of time. They're going to waste a lot of money. They're going to waste a lot of their life force. They're then going to become disillusioned and bitter. And that's just a horrible trajectory to see. Yes. Because, you know, people come yes. into it with the best of intentions. So, again, it's, it's and uh, like, honestly, our two podcasts are very complimentary because I think what we're saying is the same thing as we want people to actually understand how this game is played. Know the game you're playing. Yes. Then learn the rules of that game. Yes. No, I love it. It's, it's brittle. The world doesn't owe you anything. This is, you know, I, I call myself a reluctant capitalist, you know, I sort of probably, you know, had my idealistic, socialistic youth. And I'm like, you know, capitalism is, is a very effective method of building things, of, of human progress. Uh, but it certainly doesn't owe you anything, right? You've got to look after yourself in the world of business. And if you're doing a startup, yes. you're in the world of business, right? Yes. Because having grown up in the States in the you know 70s, 80s, I think that there is this lie within capitalism that gets pushed, particularly in the US, which is, you know, life's a level playing field. This is the land of opportunity. And so anyone can uh, make whatever they want of themselves. So if you do, then you shouldn't have to share that. And if you don't, well, what a shame you should have tried harder Mm. when in fact, we know that the rules of the game are rigged and, you know, and a lot of stuff is designed to keep people, to keep wealth where it is. And mm. that that I mean, and obviously that that whole diversity equity piece around VCs is a completely different conversation. Mm. But I think that doesn't mean don't try. It means know the game you're playing. Yeah, I mean the diversity thing is a really important topic. Like you said, it's it's a different one. I actually think I, I just want to make it clear. I'm, I'm making a, a a bit of a different point here, which is most business ideas don't deserve to succeed, right? And capitalism again is this sort of very brutal sort of form of and natural selection within the business world. And so if you want to create a business that will succeed, having a dream is great, but understand what it's going to take to create a business that's going to succeed because the world doesn't owe you anything and it's, it's going to make it very clear to you that it doesn't owe you anything. I think especially with bootstrapping founders or founders who are looking to raise and somehow just keep hitting a wall, I'm like, are you, are you being truthful enough with yourself do you understand the rules of the game that you're playing? And are you playing it well? You know, I fear too often that they're not, they're not really thinking that way. No, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And I love that frame of know the game you're playing because it is, it's not that you don't deserve to succeed. But some ideas are just not, they're not viable. Mm. And, the, and the more loosely that you can hold on to them, and I think this is where bootstrapping founders in particular, because they can be kind of working on their own or they're working with a developer and you fall into a, a silo where it's an echo chamber, you're not listening to ideas and you don't bring it out until 
it's too late to to change the fundamentals of it. Mm. So if if it's then pointed out, you you can't see it. And it's like in my other business, we you know make podcasts, and in 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 story, there's that phrase of sometimes you've got to kill your darlings. Sometimes you the thing that you love about a piece that you're doing actually doesn't belong, and you you, know, you have to cut it. Even though it's like, I just love that bite. I love mm. this little rabbit hole that we've gone down, et cetera, mm. but it doesn't serve the story. And so you got to love it and then kill it. And yeah. some, and that's, if we can, and this is where I see validating at scale as a bootstrapper, it needs to be done really quickly. You need to do that modeling and be able to pivot or let it go before yeah. you fall in love with it and you can't, you can't kill it. Yeah, absolutely agree. And on that note, I don't know, that's a, that's a bit of a heartbreaking way to end the conversation, but no, it's true. Kill your darlings, everyone. That's what you need. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> thank you so much for chatting to me. I have really enjoyed this and it's a real privilege. So thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun, Scotty. Thanks for having me on. And that's it for the bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a positive rating and review wherever you listen And even more importantly, tell someone else about it so that they can find the show as well. We are working on our social media presence, but for now, you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the bootstrap posts there. We'd love to hear from you. The bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mix by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.